0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: Imagine if Donald Trump returns to the White House. Would that leave Australia exposed, weak and alone? Would we still need and want to tie our security to Trump or a Trump-like administration? I'm Tom Switzer and this is Between the Lines. Also, coming up, remember Russiagate?
2: I can certainly say with confidence that there is significant evidence of collusion uh, between the campaign and Russia.
1: That was Adam Schiff, the top Democrat on US Congressional Intelligence Committees, speaking in March 2018. More on that soon when we speak with journalist Aaron Marte from Canada on the Russia-Trump collusion, fabrication and deception sale to the public. But first, with its long-expected counter-offensive, will Ukraine turn the tide of war? Now, Kyiv, aided and armed by the US, says it's steadfast in pushing Russia out of the country altogether. But Moscow warns that arms supplied by the West, that risks escalating the war to levels not seen so far. Meanwhile, as the war approaches its second summer, And as America barrels toward the 2024 presidential election, is Washington's political and public support for the Ukrainians waning? Brett Stevens is a Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist at the New York Times. He's author of America in Retreat, The New Isolationism and the Coming Global Disorder. That was published in 2014. Brett, welcome back to the program.
3: It's nice to be back, Tom.
1: Now, what does Ukraine's counteroffensive mean? I mean, what's the ultimate
3: goal here? Well, I think the the stated goal, um, and certainly one that an overwhelming majority of Ukrainians support, is the full restoration of Ukrainian sovereignty um, over every inch of Ukrainian territory, including Crimea, including um, uh, the areas uh, uh, in eastern Ukraine uh, lost to a um, uh, lost to the Russians uh, or, or Russian-affiliated rebels back in 20, 2014. I think, realistically, the goal is a return to the borders uh, prior to the February 2022 invasion combined, um, if that's the case, if Ukraine is to lose sovereign territory with with uh, membership or at least some kind of associate formal association with NATO so that uh, Russia doesn't think of simply freezing the conflict and then restarting it when it has um, revived its war machine.
1: Is there a mismatch in goals here between Kyiv and Washington? I mean, you have written in praise of President Biden's support for Ukraine, saying he's, he's outshone the French, the Germans, and even many Republicans who increasingly voice their skepticism, and we'll address those concerns soon. But if Ukraine would like to see Russia out of all its territory, including the Donbass uh, on the east, and then of course the Crimean Peninsula. Um, how did the Biden administration's respond?
3: I don't think the Biden administration really has a clear idea for itself what the end goal ought to be. Whereas the Ukrainians are absolutely clear: the end goal is the restoration of full, uh, full Ukrainian sovereignty, and that's that's a gap that uh, at some point um, is going to have to be uh, uh, have to be narrowed so that. There's some real synchronicity between what Kyiv is doing and what Ukrainians can can reasonably expect and what the Biden administration and its allies will supply.
1: Well, just say for argument's sake, Ukraine's counteroffensive does indeed push Russia out of Ukraine. I mean, how's how's Putin likely to respond? See, some might say that just increases the prospects that Russia as a cornered wounded animal might use nuclear weapons.
3: Well, we've been hearing that for now uh, 15 or 16 uh, months, and there are excellent reasons why Russia has not used uh, nuclear weapons. Obviously, nobody can discount the possibility. No one should ever discount the possibility. Um, But the problem for uh, uh, Russia is that the use of of even tactical nuclear weapons um, doesn't necessarily achieve um, strategic goals. Tactical nuclear weapons were developed during the Cold War, um, and in fact, by NATO, not so much by by the Russians, to destroy large concentrations of armor, Warsaw Pact armor that they feared would be pouring across the Fulda Gap and other vulnerable uh, places uh, along the um, NATO Warsaw Pact uh, uh, border. Um, you don't have the kinds of concentrations of forces where those weapons would make sense. So it becomes purely purely a terror weapon. But there are And I I suspect, I strongly suspect, um, there are good reasons why Russia would be deterred from doing that, not the least of which would be stern warnings by the Biden administration of what they call catastrophic consequences. The the United States could very easily sink the entire Black Sea uh, fleet um, in in, in a matter of of minutes. Putin doesn't get very much from the use of, of nuclear uh, the, the 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 threatened use of of nuclear weapons, which is why you haven't seen him uh, use them. You know during the, the 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 Ukrainian Kherson counteroffensive, or what they were able to achieve near Kharkiv uh, back in uh, 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 back last fall. I think it's it's more bark than bite.
1: Back to the anti-war conservatives, Brett. Now, you've written that, quote, one of the stranger features of the politics of the war in Ukraine is that the most vocal opposition to it tends to come from the hard right. And mm-hmm. recently we had something like 19 Republican lawmakers in Congress writing to the president decrying, quote, unlimited arms supplies in support of an endless war. I got a Republican presidential candidate for the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, saying that, uh, you know, the US has many vital national interests. We don't need to become involved in a territorial dispute between Ukraine and Russia. Just remind us, uh, why is Ukraine, which doesn't have much trade with the United States, it's, it's on Russia's sphere of influence on its border, why is that a vital national interest that justifies up to something like $70 billion of US taxpayer support?
3: Well... If we allow Russia to simply gobble up all or parts of of Ukraine, um, my view is that that emboldens Russia then to uh, try to seize other parts of uh, Europe that are parts of NATO. The Baltic states uh, come to mind, or until recently, some of the neutral cu- countries in in Europe like uh, like Sweden and Finland, which is why both countries have. Rushed to join uh, NATO. The other aspect of it is that there is a there is a signaling quality, which is that if the United States, after it has made various assurances of Ukrainian guaranteeing Ukrainian sovereignty, allows Russia to gobble up Ukraine, then it is a signal to the Chinese to gobble up Taiwan, and we embark on a period of global disorder where powers like Russia, China, but also um, Iran, will be um, uh, encouraged to get when, what they can as they see the United States as 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 weak and feckless. And I think that sends a dreadful signal that we would ultimately pay a much stiffer price for when they attempt to attack territories that are NATO itself.
1: But hasn't this Ukraine crisis clearly demonstrated the costs and weaknesses of Russian power and influence? I mean, it's failure to defeat Ukraine. Doesn't that show... Uh, Putin's armed forces being degraded already.
3: Yes, um, and 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 it's uh, you know look if people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, the mm-hmm. Republican Congresswoman who's opposed to the war, isolationist figures like Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky or Mike Lee from from Utah had had, had their way, um, we never would have provided Ukraine with any arms uh, with which to be able to uh, uh, to defend itself. So it's absolutely true that what we have provided so far has uh, gravely damaged a, um, a, an aggressive strategic adversary uh, to, uh, to the United States. And my argument is let's try as best as we can to finish the job, not only for the sake of um, the, the, the rules of international order and the freedom of, U- of, of the Ukrainian people, um, but also for the sake of, of uh, a global international order led by a credible, by, by a credible American power.
1: See, those anti-war conservatives you mentioned, they would simply come back to you and say, surely there are limits to power, limits to US power in in a world that's no longer unipolar. And they'd say, Brett, that the US, you know, it's been badly bruised and battered in Iraq and Afghanistan, Libya, even Syria, uh, or at least it's failed to meet its objectives in those countries. America, this is what they would say, this is what the anti-war conservatives would say, they'd say America should just reorder its strategic priorities away from the Persian Gulf, away from Eastern Europe against a weak and declining Russia, and instead focus on a more genuine threat from a rising China that increasingly expands its reach and influence. What's wrong with that argument?
3: Well, a a number of things are, are wrong with it. First of all, it was because we. it's not an accident. It's six months after Barack Obama in 2013 allowed his red line in Syria to be violated that Putin seized uh, Crimea and and eastern Ukraine. It's not an accident that roughly six months after our calamitous and unnecessary uh, uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan, that Putin again tried to seize um, uh, seize all of all of Ukraine. So. Donald Rumsfeld had this line, which uh, I think is very true. Whatever else you think of Donald Rumsfeld, the former U.S. Secretary mm-hmm. of, of Defense, weakness is uh, weakness is provocative. Um, so the by by saying that you know, say Afghanistan wasn't a vital interest, we invited an attack on something much closer to our our vital interests. We allowed Ukraine to simply uh, fall by not not supplying them with the with the arms they they have desperately needed these last. 16 or or so months it would be an invitation to the Chinese to seize uh, uh, to seize Taiwan so you know Napoleon once said that the the, that the logic of of retreat is ultimately surrender um, and that is the course that these Republicans are are arguing for if if Ukraine were to fall and say Russia were in 10 years time after it is rearmed and licked its wounds and learned the military lessons of its problems in Ukraine. If if Russia were then to attack, say, Lithuania, which is a member of, of NATO, you would have these same Republicans saying, well, why should we risk World War Three for little Lithuania? And they would come out with all these arguments about how uh, we were wrong to uh, bring the Baltic states into NATO, and, and it's not really a strategic interest. And so you end up retreating further and further until the next thing you know um, you have uh, – Russian tanks at the outskirts of Berlin again. The world learned at a, at our cost in in the 1930s, the 1940s that appeasement of dictators um uh lead tends to lead to to terrible outcomes.
1: And yet Donald Trump is leading the Republican campaign. Let's hear this recent exchange between the former president and a CNN journalist.
0: Can you say if you want Ukraine or Russia to win
2: this war? I want everybody to stop dying. They're dying, Russians and Ukrainians. I want them to stop dying. Now, that CNN town
1: hall meeting took place in New Hampshire, a crucial first primary state in the Republican presidential nomination process. And as we heard there, Brett, uh, those Republican
3: primary voters—they they, they like what Trump said. Yep, that's look. You know, historically, it was the Republicans who were the more isolationist-minded party certainly in the 1920s and the 1930s it was the Republicans who were most staunchly opposed to supporting uh, Great Britain um, after 1939 and after the you know the Battle of France and then Britain had um, had started and then in during the Cold War the party sort of flipped and it became Democrats uh, particularly the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party that became extremely skeptical about supporting uh, not even foreign wars, just even supporting allies who uh, might be fighting some of our enemies. Now the wheel has turned again, and uh, the Republican Party in some respects is is reverting to form. I mean, bear in mind, a lot of a lot of senior Republicans are still um, as eager, if not more eager, than the Biden administration to see, uh, Russia defeated. But it's it's a very different Republican Party than, say, the one that George W. Bush led 20 years ago.
1: Yeah. Are your concerns about these uh, anti-war conservatives, and indeed there is a dovish sentiment in the Democrats, but um, aren't they overblown? Because, I mean, an argument could be made, Brett, that the US is so deeply committed to Ukraine uh, that it's highly unlikely that any president, even a Trump should drop support. Here's Professor John Mearsheimer recently on Spectator TV.
2: The argument being made is that the Republicans are beginning to go soft on Ukraine at the elite level and that if Donald Trump gets elected, there's a really good chance that he'll pull the plug on the Ukrainians. Uh, This is not going to happen, in my opinion. The United States is backing Ukraine to the hilt. And if the United States withdraws its support for Ukraine, its material support, Ukraine is going to collapse. It can't stand up to the Russians. The Russians would win a big victory. It's hard for me to imagine that any American leader, whether it's Donald Trump or Joe Biden, is going to allow that to happen. It's just not going to happen. We are too deeply committed to this war. There's too much Russophobia in the United States. There's too much talk about the fact that this is an existential threat that we're facing with Russia for us to cut and run and allow Ukraine to go under.
1: That was John Mearsheimer from the University of Chicago. Mm -hmm. If Washington withdraws its support, Ukraine collapses, Russia wins. Brett Stevens, why would any U.S. president allow that to happen?
3: Well, for the first time in maybe my entire life, I find myself agreeing with John <laughs> Mearsheimer. I, I I hope he's right. Um, but uh, Donald Trump, you just heard his voice, is a, a highly fickle uh, character who has previously expressed his warmth and admiration for uh, Vladimir Putin. There is yeah, an isolationist wing in the Republican Party to which he is responding. And there is the argument, why are we spending so much money to help the Ukrainians when we should be, say, building a wall on our southern border or putting, putting those funds to some, some other priority? So I just am not nearly as confident as Professor Mearsheimer. Um, we have cultivated a reputation of being a more dangerous friend sometimes than we are a foe. And that's a bad place for a great power to be.
1: You talk about the history, though. Trump did say uh, in 2016 he wanted to improve relations with Russia. That clearly did not happen. I mean, his administration tightened sanctions on Russia. Unlike Obama, you mentioned before, Trump bombed Russia's ally Syria twice in violation of the chemical weapons. And again, unlike Obama, Trump armed the Ukrainians. So Trump says one thing. But ultimately, his policies were pretty hawkish against Russia.
3: More hawkish than Obama—that's that's certainly true. There's a, there was a kind of schizophrenia, if you will, in the Trump administration because Trump hired a lot of guys like John Bolton and H.R. Uh, McMaster, um, uh, who were Russia anti-Russia hawks. Trump was never quite a part of his own administration, if you will. So <laughs> policies were being conducted that were at variance with what Trump obviously. Uh, uh, wanted to do. And you saw that repeatedly with threatened withdrawals about Syria. You know, one of the things that I think is underappreciated abroad is the extent to which the Trump administration was really defined by a kind of complete incoherence, because it was like, frankly, no other presidency that we've ever seen.
1: Brett, always great to have you on Between the Lines.
3: Thank you very much. It's an honor to be heard down under.
1: Brett Stevens, columnist with The New York Times. I'm Tom Switzer, and you're listening to Between the Lines. Remember Russiagate? This was the widespread claim that the US President, Donald Trump, was a Kremlin agent, and his victory in the 2016 election was primarily due to the Trump-Russia collusion. This was based on the work of Collusion Dossier author Christopher Steele a former British spy, who was working for the Clinton campaign. Now, to say that the Western mainstream media during the first two years of the Trump presidency was obsessed with the story, it's an understatement, isn't it? Who, for instance, can forget the ABC's Four Corners documentary?
0: Hello and welcome to Four Corners. Tonight, we begin our special three-part investigation into the story of the century, the election of US President Donald Trump and his ties to Russia. But was all this,
1: the Steele dossier, the FBI's Trump-Russia probe, the near-breathless press coverage, was all this a case study in what my next guest calls, quote, mass hysteria and media credulity? Aaron Marte, a Canadian journalist who writes at Stubstack, he hosts the show Pushback with Aaron Marte on The Grey Zone, a news website and blog. Aaron, welcome to the program. Good to be here. First, tell us about yourself and your political views.
4: Well, I'm a journalist, and I've always been left-wing my entire life. And oddly, during the Russiagate era, I found myself in a very tiny minority on the left who called it out as the farce that it was. Um, and it's been a surreal experience, So, of course, but not surprising at all that John Durham, after this long investigation, finds the probe to be baseless, because that was obvious, from the start to anybody who actually followed the facts of the matter.
1: Yes, and uh, to clarify for our listeners, you're no Trump supporter, that's pretty evident, and you're a longtime contributor to The Nation, which has been America's most prominent progressive political publication, I think since its founding in 1865. You've argued in the past that Trump indulges in unhinged bigotry and xenophobic conspiracy theories. Um, just clarifying, that's your line.
4: Yes, uh, and the irony is that Democrats responded to his victory with unhinged conspiracy theories of their own. So How Trump, so? you know, put, well, you know, Trump pushed the lie that Barack Obama was a secret Muslim, and I'm sure Trump advocated other, you know, fringe stuff. But Democrats responded to his victory by claiming he was a secret Russian asset who was being blackmailed by Vladimir Putin with P-tapes and other compromise. So we had this strange experience when our our, conspiracy, our, our political spectrum was dominated by a conspiracy theorists, both in the Oval Office and in his opposition.
1: Yeah, I think you just mentioned the B tape. Take us back to the BuzzFeed news publication of the Steele dossier. Now, this was in January twenty seventeen, just ten days before Trump's inauguration. Just remind us of what the Steele dossier revealed.
4: Well, the Steele dossier revealed nothing because it was a scam. It was all fiction, and. Uh, What we later found out was that it was actually funded by the Clinton campaign. But before we knew that, the Steele dossier was published by BuzzFeed in January 2017. And it was said to be this document of research compiled by a former British spy, Christopher Steele, Mm -hmm. that had made its way to the FBI. And when it came out, this fueled what was then this growing innuendo about a Trump-Russia conspiracy, uh, which had started shortly before the November 2016 election. But after Trump won in the surprise victory that shocked everybody, including Trump, after he won, this Russia thing became front and center. And so when the Steele dossier came out in January 2017, shortly before Trump was inaugurated, it really made this Russia scandal the dominant issue of Trump's Mm -hmm. presidency. And The basic message of the Steele dossier was that there was an elaborate scheme between Trump and Russia and his campaign, and that to keep Trump in line, the Kremlin was blackmailing Trump. With compromise, including a P tape, uh, this alleged tape of Trump cavorting with prostitutes and watching them urinate uh, inside the Ritz Carlton in Moscow. And it was ridiculous on its face, but yet, pretty much the entire establishment, Western media, certainly in the US, and many people inside the Democratic Party took it seriously. And they pursued this conspiracy theory above all else. And this shaped pretty much the entirety of Trump's presidency until it collapsed in spectacular fashion.
1: Well, there were some sceptics of this story. We, we, on this program during this period, uh, 2017, 2018, early 2019, we had the late Professor Stephen Cohen, someone we both knew, uh, Mary Dijewski from The Independent, both, by the way, on the left spectrum of politics. They dismissed the Steele dossier as something of a joke and spy thriller, but the press took the Steele dossier seriously. Why?
4: Well, the press took it seriously because they became wedded to this narrative of a Trump-Russia conspiracy for many reasons. First of all, it was profitable selling their audiences this idea that the president was a Russian agent and that the secret conspiracy was about to be found out. It drove ratings. But then there was also just a, uh, a political use to all this, which is that Trump, whatever you think of him, he was an outsider candidate. He claimed that he was anti-establishment. He promised to drain the swamp. Now, of course, I think all of that was a scam on his part. But I think you had members of the elite uh, and their allies in media who just couldn't tolerate the fact that you had someone coming from the outside and calling them out and sort of putting an ugly face on the global uh, U.S. hegemonic system. And sometimes Trump was too honest. He would say things like, we're in Syria to take the oil. Uh, You're not supposed to say that. You're supposed to say we're in Syria to spread democracy and fight terrorism. So the establishment never liked him.
1: Yeah, but that, does that justify the establishment and the media supporting this steel dossier if it was a
4: crock? No, of course it doesn't justify it. But I'm just trying to explain, you know, why why it was happening. And then, you know, they also really identified, I think many journalists here in the U.S. especially, identify with the Democratic Party establishment. And so when Hillary Clinton lost, rather than accept responsibility for her failures, her campaign turned to blaming Russia and mm. promoting this conspiracy theory that they were secretly funding because... We didn't know this when Steele Dossier first came out, but finally it emerged that the the Steele Dossier was funded by Clinton. And moreover, you had people in the FBI. I mean, worse than the media, I think. People in the FBI were taking this seriously. Under James Comey. Jim Comey, Andrew McCabe. They were using the Steele Dossier as source material. So, for example, when they went to the FISA court, which is the court that rubber stamps requests to spy on people, when they went to the FISA court to spy on Carter Page, who was a Trump campaign associate, they relied on the Steele dossier (laughs) to get that warrant. So this was taken seriously, not just by the media, but but, but by the FBI. And because the media has such an unhealthy subservience to the FBI and the national security state, they also gave it far more credence than it deserved. And if you just looked at the material itself, it was obvious that it was a joke. It was ridiculous, this idea of a Trump-Russia conspiracy blackmail plot And, you know, it was obvious what Steele was doing or whoever wrote the dossier was doing. They were reading what was in the media. And after something uh, emerged in the media, they would then write something approximately resembling it. Uh, But really, Steele had no inside information because it later emerged the people he was relying on or the person he was relying on had also invented everything that he gave still.
1: Okay, now what about that random conversation between an unpaid Trump advisor, this was a bloke named George Papadopoulos, and the former Australian Foreign Minister Alexander Downer at the time he was our... High Commissioner in London. Now, this was a few months before the 2016 presidential election campaign. The story came out in January of 2017. Obviously, here in Australia was huge news because Downer is a prominent Australian political figure. Why was this story used? I mean, you talk about the Steele dossier, but what about this story being used as a pretext for the FBI probe into Trump's alleged links with Russia?
4: Well, that's a good example of why the Steele dossier was a joke and also why the FBI's claims about how the investigation began are worthy of scrutiny, because this conversation between Papadopoulos and this Australian diplomat, Alexander Downer, which supposedly triggered the entire Trump-Russia probe, there's no mention of it in the Steele dossier. And why (laughs) is that? Because at the time that Steele was putting out his his fictional reports, that Papadopoulos conversation was not in the media. And since Steele was either using the media or his own imagination for source material, that's why the Papadopoulos story wasn't in his dossier, because he didn't know about it yet. It wasn't public. And the reason why I think the FBI says they launched the investigation based on the Papadopoulos tip is because I think they're covering up that they actually started the investigation based on the Steele dossier. Because we know now that the FBI got the Steele dossier in early July 2016 and opened up the investigation a few weeks later. Now, the cover story is that they claim they actually opened up the investigation after getting this tip from Downer that Papadopoulos had reportedly said that the Russians might be able to offer help to the Trump campaign. But if you look at the FBI's document that opens up the Trump-Russia investigation, that opens up the entire thing based on that tip, you'll find there's no mention in there at all of any Russians offering Papadopoulos anything. And there's no mention of the stolen Democratic Party emails that are at the heart of this entire affair. Uh, What actually happened was, Downer reported, and he he said this to John Durham, it's in Durham's report, that Papadopoulos had only said to him that the Russians might have something on Hillary Clinton. He didn't say what it was. He didn't say anything about an offer to the Trump campaign. He didn't say anything about the stolen emails that were taken from the DNC and give to WikiLeaks. So that's why I don't think that mm-hmm. Papadopoulos really was the official predicate. I think they were just using that tip they got from Downer to cover up what, what had already begun based on the Steele dossier. Regardless, the Papadopoulos tip was so thin that it's, as Durham found, it was not a legitimate basis to open up this investigation. So basically, this investigation was baseless. And accordingly, it turned up nothing because there was never a conspiracy to be found.
1: Yeah. And we should stress that the Downer um, uh, exchange uh, or the the notification of the Downer exchange with George Papadopoulos, that's only just a footnote in the Mueller report that came out in April 2019, which found no Trump-Russia conspiracy. That was a shock to the system. Did that once and for all damage the Steele dossier's credibility?
4: You know, it did damage the the Steele dossier's credibility. I don't think uh, anybody in establishment media tries to take it seriously anymore after they spent so much effort trying to make it look credible. There were all these puff pieces about Christopher Steele and what a uh, you know dogged uh, spook he was, and he was just on, he was just there to uncover what he thought was a grave national security threat. No one tries that anymore. But still, because I really think this whole thing has operated sort of like a cult, you have this fixed belief in a conspiracy, and no matter how much evidence disproves it, you find ways to cling on to it. So even though Steele's been discredited, there are still people in establishment media here who very much think or very much claim that there really was something to this whole Trump-Russia conspiracy theory. It really is a cult. That's why you know we have QAnon. People know about QAnon. I call it Blueanon. Blue-Anon you know, blue is the Democratic Party color. So to me, it's it, it, it's pretty analogous. You have this unwavering belief in this conspiracy theory because it's so convenient to so many people In powerful positions.
1: Yeah, now this latest investigation into this whole Russiagate drama, it really just highlights a a collaboration between Trump's opponents and and the FBI. This is the 306-page Durham report. Now, that's attracted hardly any Australian media coverage. And many in the media in the United States have sought to downplay his findings. This is a New York Times headline, Aaron. Quote, after years of political hype, the Durham inquiry failed to deliver. And isn't it true, Aaron, that there will be no court cases or indictments arising from this inquiry? So what does that tell you?
4: There were indictments already, but they resulted in, uh, well, one led to a guilty plea of an FBI lawyer, Kevin Kleinsmith, who admitted to basically doctoring a FISA application on Carter Page, uh, who was a Trump campaign volunteer. So that did lead to a Conviction. Uh, Then there were two other charges against uh, Ivan Danchenko, who was a source for the Steele dossier, and Michael Sussman, who was an attorney for the Clinton campaign. Those ended in acquittals. But in the process, a lot of information came out. In the case of Danchenko, it was more confirmation that the Steele dossier was a joke. Danchenko uh, was the main source for Steele, so he says, and he never he wasn't even in Russia. He had no access to any Kremlin officials. He only had access to friends of his who. Uh, over drinks, came up with tales that he put into the Steele dossier, and his own imagination. Uh, He invented some claims that were put into the Steele dossier as well. And then Michael Sussman case that ended in an acquittal, but that case underscored the fact that the Clinton campaign had tried to feed false information to the FBI. In Sussman's case, that there was some sort of secret covert communications channel between Trump and Russia. So what's funny about that Times headline about how, you know, that after years of hype, Mm-hmm. the report failed to deliver. You could say that about the Mueller report. The Mueller report followed years of hype mm. pushed by the New York Times and everybody else in establishment US media. And I you know, it sounds like in Australia as well, that there was a deep conspiracy between Trump and Russia and Robert Mueller was going to prove it. That was the mm. consensus.
1: Well, clearly, Aaron, the FBI got ahead of itself uh, in launching this full scale probe of the Trump-Russia relationship. But Nevertheless, uh, weren't Russian attempts to disrupt and interfere in the 2016 election all too real?
4: The same U.S. officials who fed the public this false narrative that they were finding uh, evidence of collusion are the same ones who also told us that Russia launched a massive interference campaign in the U.S. election, and that's what helped get Trump elected. So given the preponderance of fraud, that went into the collusion aspect. Naturally, that should raise skepticism of this Russian interference aspect as well. And if you look at the facts, which is what journalists are supposed to do, you'll find that the provenance for these Russian interference campaign, uh, cl- these Russian interference claims, all trace back to the Clinton campaign. It was a Clinton campaign contractor, CrowdStrike, that first generated the claim that Russia hacked into the DNC, and later on, under oath, CrowdStrike CEO Sean Henry admitted that actually, oops, we had no evidence that these alleged Russian hackers even took anything from the server. And the public didn't hear about that until May 2020, which is more than a year after Mueller shut down. All of that was hidden from the public throughout the entirety of Mueller's probe. So just because U.S. intelligence officials say that Russia interfered in the election, it doesn't mean we accept their claims on faith. We you know, assess their claims based on evidence. And all the evidence to me so far does not support that conclusion.
1: Okay, some critics might be tuning in and still ask the question, isn't it curious that Trump treated Putin so gently? That's what they would say to you.
4: It's certainly true that Trump had an affinity for Putin. He said very nice things about him. Um, but Putin had an affinity for many foreign leaders. He He loved Benjamin Netanyahu and spoke very warmly of him. Did anybody try to investigate Trump for a conspiracy between himself and Netanyahu? Even though, by the way, there's more evidence that they actually colluded because before Trump took office, Shortly before uh, he took office, in late December 2016, his, his team tried to undermine a UN Security Council vote that was going to uh, criticize Israeli settlements. And Michael Flynn, on Trump's behalf, after getting a request from the Israeli government, tried to undermine that vote. So actually, if people care about Trump and his ties to a foreign power, they would look at Israel. But of course, people don't seriously care about that because this is not a serious story. This was a joke. And it was done for really cynical reasons. And while everyone was hyperventilating about Trump saying nice things about Vladimir Putin, they all ignored his actual policies. So policy-wise, Trump was not nice to Putin at all. At all, He authorized weapons to Ukraine that Obama refused to send because Obama didn't want to further inflame the war that uh, broke out in 2014 after a U.S.-backed coup. Obama said that you know, if anybody wants to go to war with Russia in this town, they should speak up. Trump came into office and he came under heavy pressure to prove he wasn't a Russian agent. And he also, I think, was driven by wanting to do anything he could to undermine Obama. So he approved those weapons. Putin certainly wasn't happy about that. Trump also tore up vital nuclear treaties between the U.S. and Russia, which massively escalated tensions. He tore up the INF Treaty. He tore up the Open Skies Treaty. Uh, These were huge developments that seriously undermined U.S.-Russia relations. And he was incentivized to do that, I think, because he was called a Russian agent and a Russian puppet. So I think he wanted to prove that he wasn't. Uh, And meanwhile, the media was incentivized to look away from his policies because they were also pushing this narrative that he was a Mm. Russian agent. So it was this vicious cycle where everybody was incentivized to ignore Trump's actual policies, which entailed a very dangerous escalation with Russia.
1: Finally... And very quickly, Aaron, do you think there has been any kind of accountability for not just the flawed, some might say dodgy U.S. intelligence that relied on the discredited Steele dossier, but accountability also for the many media figures and political figures who promoted this fictitious Russiagate narrative?
4: Well, the Steele dossier is such a joke and such an embarrassment that some outlets like the Washington Post... Uh, have been forced to issue corrections. But that really is the only instance where there's been accountability when when it comes to Russia gate there is a very very long rap sheet. To illustrate, the times and the washington post won the pulitzer prize for their reporting on the investigation into trump's potential conspiracy with russia. And so many of their stories were so completely overblown and and overhyped and contained serious errors that I've written about, yet they haven't returned their Pulitzers, and people still pretend as if that was serious journalism. And when it comes to the FBI, look, Durham was tasked with investigating the investigators, and so many key officials, uh, FBI Director Jim Comey, his deputy, Andrew McCabe, Peter Strzok, the FBI agent who opened up the Trump Russia probe, they refused to speak to Durham, and Durham didn't do anything. He didn't subpoena them when he could have, whereas Mueller, the Mueller team, they charged anyone with anything they could to make the Russia investigation look credible and to give the public the false appearance that they were on the case of a conspiracy. So when it comes to media and intelligence officials, no, there's been no accountability at all.
1: Aaron, great to have you on Between the Lines. Thanks for having me. That's Aaron Marte. He's host of the show Push Back with Aaron Marte on The Grey Zone. I'm Tom Switzer, and this is Between the Lines. Up next towards an Australian alliance with the U.S. based on hope, not fear. We've just been reflecting on Trump's shock election in 2016. And at this stage, and despite the various criminal investigations he faces, Trump, well, he can't be written off in 2024. So if indeed he returns to the White House, what would that mean for Australia? After all, both sides of politics, Labor and the coalition, they support closer military ties with Washington in the face of a rising China. But might the US alliance be badly weakened if an incoming Trump or Trump-like administration is in power? Emma Shortis is a historian based at RMIT University in Victoria. She focuses on US and global environmental politics. Her essay in the forthcoming issue of Australian Foreign Affairs is called Imperfect Union Towards an Alliance Based on Hope, Not Fear. Emma, welcome to Between the Lines. Hey Tom, thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. Now, to what extent would an incoming Trump, or indeed a Trump-like administration, weaken our alliance with the US?
0: Well, I, I'm not actually sure it would, um, and that was part of my motivation for, for writing this ec- essay, in fact. You know, I think we can speculate about um, that weakening. Um, Ron DeSantis, one of the um, candidates for the nomination, said at one point that he would actually sever diplomatic relations with Australia over our COVID response. Um, <laughs> but I think, look, I think more broadly um, concerns about that potential, even even the idea of the alliance weakening, um, reveals a lot about how we think about our role in the world and our relationship to the United States and and particularly the the movement Trump leads. And I think that was even revealed when um, Kevin Rudd was recently appointed the new Australian ambassador to to the United States. There was this kind of hand-wringing about how Rudd had criticised Trump and what would that mean if Trump came back? Would that mean that Trump would be angry and the United States would abandon Australia? And I think I would question that assumption, you know, why would it be such a bad thing if somebody like Trump or a second Trump administration distanced itself from uh, from Australia? Um, you know, this suggestion that we would want to maintain the alliance as it is now under a second Trump administration, I think is something that we need to question, because I think maintaining the alliance as it is under Trump, Mark, II would be a a pretty bad idea, to put it mildly.
1: Yes, but uh, Trump was in power from 2017 to 21, and uh, that, uh, I mean, his presidency was full of all sorts of controversies, but it Mm. didn't undermine Australian support for the US, even though Malcolm Turnbull, I mean, you mentioned Kevin Rudd there, Malcolm Turnbull had attacked Trump uh, before Trump's election, and... You know, a strong case could be made, Emma, that the US alliance grew in importance because of a mutual fear and distrust of China. Why would things be different if Trump were back in in the White House?
0: Um... Tom, I think my first point in response to that would be that I don't think the the doubling down on the alliance that we saw under the Trump administration by Liberal prime ministers was just about China. China was certainly, or perceptions of China, was certainly played a role, but I think it was also about ideological alignment, um, particularly between the Morrison government and the Trump administration. You know, other U.S. allies who share awareness about China didn't go all in with the Trump administration like the Australian government did, and I think Mm. there are reasons for that beyond just concerns about China. I think a Trump administration, a second Trump administration would be very different from the first Trump administration. You know, it's, it's kind of hard to even think about, but I think it would be even more volatile than the first Trump administration. I think it would be more hawkish as well. I think Trump would be more demanding of unquestioning allegiance to the United States and even less able or willing to make any evidence-based or sound decisions about foreign policy in particular. And I think because of that doubling down that Australia continually does around the alliance, we're particularly exposed to the to the risk of the volatility of a potential second Trump administration. Um, we're exposed to significant potential reputational damage, not to mention the risk of any conflict um, you know, potentially led by Trump or that the United States gets into under under Trump and being associated with that. And I don't think we're ex- really kind of examining what that might mean for Australia.
1: Yeah. And on Trump, and, and you make this clear in your forthcoming Australian foreign affairs essay, Emma, you place great emphasis on the January 6th, mm-hmm. 2021 Capitol Hill riots to try to overturn the US presidential election results. Uh, it was, by by any uh, account, uh, an appalling event. And you say that that should have prompted a national reflection on the alliance and our nation's role in the world. But let me push back gently. Aren't those concerns about the strength of American democracy, even talk of a civil war, aren't they overblown? Because surely the message of January 6th, and indeed the first Trump administration, doesn't the US system of checks and balances, doesn't that system still work?
0: I think this is a really important question, Tom, and I think I would start by saying that I, I absolutely do not think that concerns about American democracy and the strength of American democratic institutions are overblown, but that that is certainly isn't to say that civil war is coming or or even um, likely. I think what I would say that the sense that civil war might be coming or in, increasing political violence might be coming, and many Americans have, have this sense, that, that can kind of almost justify an excuse already ele- escalating political violence. And that's already happening in the United States. It's incredibly, there's an incredibly volatile atmosphere in the United States. But in in terms of the actual strength of American democracy, I really don't think we can underestimate how much of a near miss January 6 was. You know, I, I don't think that the fact that January six wasn't successful is proof, necessarily, of the um, inevitable strength of American democratic institutions. You know, historians would call this contingency. <laughs> so I'm talking about mm. the, the almost sheer luck that that mob on January six, for example, only just missed Mike Pence, mm. and we know what they would have done to him because they told us. And I think that the Australian government, um, and, and even Australia more broadly, we we never really asked ourselves what would have happened if things turned out differently on January 6th, you know, how the Australian government would have or even could have responded to that kind of catastrophe in the United States. And and we know that January 6 was a test run. Um and, and to his credit, President Joe Biden is doing a lot to to shore up that systems system of checks and balances that, that's so critical um, that you mentioned, but it's still very much under attack. And what I argue in my essay is that we should be reframing our relationship with the United States so that it better supports that democracy, so that we have a relationship that's built on democratic solidarity, that a system that supports that democratic accountability, rather than what it is now, which is a relationship so kind of single-mindedly focused on approaches to national security that are deeply anti-democratic.
1: A volatile situation, that is absolutely mm-hmm. true. But what about the late 60s? Now, You and I were too young to, well, we weren't, neither of us was born in the late 60s, (laughs) but we've certainly studied the subject. I mean, the burning cities, the race riots, the Vietnam War protests, the political assassinations and so on and so forth. And Emma, I mean, we're students of history. We know that the US bounced back from those setbacks with tremendous force. The Americans went on to win the Cold War, achieve US unipolarity. Why are you so sure that this time is different?
0: Uh, I think that's such an important question, Tom. You know, I think, um, like you, I think about the the 1960s a lot, um, and 1968 in particular, um, not least because this week is the 55th anniversary of um, the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. So this is something that's on my mind an awful lot. Um, uh, Look, I think the the fact that the fractures of the 1960s and, and, you know, 1968 in particular didn't result in American decline isn't necessarily proof that um, that US-led unipolar world that you mentioned is inevitable. You know, it's not inevitable. And I think we live in a very different world today, Mm. one that many experts are are arguing is is shifting away from that American dominance, from that unipolarity to something quite different. And I'm not sure that we can rely on the United States um, in its kind of current form to manage that transition very well. And I'd also say that we are we're living really with the failures of the 1960s, you know, the failures to resolve those fractures that you that you mentioned. Mm. The failure to, I think, really address the backlash against the civil rights movement, for example. That's a big part of the reason that the United States even got to the point of the January 6th insurrection in the first place. So so we can see those direct kind of through lines from the 1960s to today, but with added dimensions. You know, we've talked about the rise of China and I think an often pretty badly judged response to that. We've got the unfolding um, impacts, for example, of catastrophic climate change. So this is what um, some experts would call a a polycrisis. Now, that's not to say, though, of course, that the United States can't recover from this crisis. It very much can. I think Joe Biden is committed to that recovery. But I also think that any such recovery and and really a transition to a, a better United States and a better world has to be led by a very different approach than that one you mentioned in the in the 1960s and, and the
1: 1980s. Yeah, but are you overlooking US strengths, Emma? Now, this is what the former Australian Prime Minister John Howard told me last year.
0: I think if you're looking for inspiration
2: from the United States, you would look to the way the Americans uh, operate their economy. We can learn a lot. And the American economy is still remarkably resilient.
1: Uh, it's capable of producing technological change at a far greater and deeper rate uh, than any other country. John Howard on Between the Lines, now to demonstrate his point, The Economist magazine recently published a a data-rich report on America's economic performance over the last three decades, so since they uh, became the unipolar power. And, Emma, it showed that far from declining, American capitalism is dominant, it's accelerating, um, US GDP has raced well ahead of Europe and Japan, and it accounts for about 60% of the G- G7's GDP. So, Emma, are you overlooking America's economic strengths?
0: I don't think so, Tom. You know, I, I would never deny the the impact of the United States economy and its, inf- its ability to influence that change. You know, I think we're living with an example right now through the Inflation Reduction Act. It's a big kind of sweep of climate legislation that Biden passed. That's radically reshaping markets even now. And it's reshaping potentially Australia's relationship with the United States over climate change. But what I would also argue is that US economic strength is not necessarily a force for good. It's in fact not a good thing for a lot of people and a lot of Americans in particular. You know, American US economic strength might be good for Elon Musk, but it's not necessarily good for the people who work for him. And that rising inequality gap that the United States is seeing is actually disastrous for social cohesion and another contributor to the volatility that we've been talking about. Um, and I'd, I guess I'd also add that the U.S. economic power, that strength that you mentioned, is also really linked to its co- coercive and military power. And the U.S. will always wield that power in a way um, in in the service of its own interests. And again, that's why I'm arguing for for reshaping the alliance to something based on democratic solidarity and accountability, rather than that kind of economic issue.
1: Yes. Well, in your essay, you say that many Australians are hoping for, quote, the articulation of a positive, more aspirational vision. Um, what do you mean there?
0: Sure. So this actually comes from a study done by the United States Study Centre at, at Sydney University, um, surveying people about their views on the alliance. and And this really tells us that People know really clearly what the alliance is against, you know. We know that the alliance is lining up against what it sees as external enemies and and currently that seems to be China. But what we don't know is what the alliance is for. Like what is it aiming to build? How is it benefiting Australia? And I think that, again, that's why I'm arguing for this reframing for, for an alliance that's based on hope and something positive rather than fear and this kind of assumption that conflict and war is inevitable.
1: You talk about hope and and being positive, Mm. and you mention a foreign policy that is inclusive of First Nations people and their knowledge. Many Australians would agree with you, Emma, but how would that kind of foreign policy, and this is the big issue in Canberra Mm. and indeed around the region, how would that help deter uh, an expansionist China in our region?
0: So this is a really important question. I think it's so important for us to examine how adopting an Indigenous voice to Parliament would help us to rethink Australia's role in the world. And I think it would also really help us to rethink even concepts. You mentioned, Tom, deterrence, concepts like deterrence, which again is this kind of very negative framing of international relations that assumes conflict is inevitable. And I think giving First Nations a people's a uh, place at the table in foreign policy would help Australia to really embrace millennia of knowledge about collective security rather than about conflict avoidance. There's already work happening in the department around that, but more broadly, I think this could help us to um, not only we start to repair Australia's image in the world, but approach the world with a different kind of generosity and empathy that I think often Australia has failed to take with us when we when we look out into the world. Well, Emma, on that optimistic
1: note, uh, <laughs> great to have you on, RN.
0: Thanks so much, Tom.
1: That was RMIT historian Emma Shortus. Her essay in the forthcoming issue of Australian Foreign Affairs is called Imperfect Union Towards an Alliance Based on Hope, Not Fear. Well, that's it for Between the Lines. And if you'd like to listen to past programs, including my recent discussions with two conservative protagonists over the voice to Parliament, supporter Chris Kenny and Peter Credlin, she opposes the voice, just go to the ABC Listen app and search for the Between the Lines podcast. I'm Tom Switzer. Bye for now.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast.